Good morning. It is, as always, a delight to see you this morning. We're thankful for your presence, and we're always thankful to God who has allowed us another opportunity to be together, to grow and gain encouragement from each other, ultimately to glorify Him, for He is certainly worthy of the very best that we have to offer, worthy of our souls and our spirits, our hearts, our minds, and our lives. If you're visiting with us, we are especially thankful for your presence, and we hope, as been asked, that you will allow us to greet you after we're done and get to know you better. We're just thankful that you've decided to be here with us this morning. If you have your Bibles and you'd be turning to the book of Colossians, that's where our study will come from this morning. It is a new year, and that always invites new opportunities and new focus and all of those things, and we have been emphasizing a focus on Christ here lately or recently. And it's not always that we go back and talk about previous sermons, but just Wednesday night we were talking about in the invitation about your relationship with God and it being singular, you and the Lord, first and foremost and primary. And that's kind of the thought. And last time we were together, we talked about honoring Christ. And we looked at a couple of books already. We started in Colossians 3 around the new year, and then we talked about Hebrews chapter 12 and an emphasis on focusing on Christ. And we kind of returned to that thought, honoring Christ and thinking about Him. Paul taught, we notice chapter 1 here in the book of Colossians, these first 14 verses, really two thoughts and several points, but one of the things that Paul taught was we live in hope of heaven. The brethren should have and been mindful of the Christ because he's the one who provides that hope. Four ways to give honor to Christ, live in hope of heaven, obey and share the gospel, pray for God's people, and thank God for his salvation. That would take you down to about verse number 12 in Colossians chapter 1. And then we looked at verses 13 and 14, honor Christ for what he has done. And right in verses 13 and 14, Paul tells us several things that Christ has done for us, ultimately for the world, but all of those who've obeyed the gospel. He says he rescued us. We were in danger. We were in peril, and Christ rescued us from the domain of darkness. He goes on to say he translated or transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. We were in that dark kingdom, and now we've been translated into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's dear son. We don't often talk about it, but the Bible does. It says when we were in that darkness, we were children of the devil. And now in the light, we get to be sons of God. What an amazing difference between those two realities. Jesus is the one who provided that. He did that for us. He should be honored for what he has done. He goes on to say he have redemption. Forgiveness of sin is because and through Jesus Christ. And that takes us to our study this morning. We'll begin in verse number 15. We'll go down to about verse number 20. Before we do that, I want to share with you why this matters. Why does it matter? The point this morning, the title is, Honor Christ for Who He Is. Verses 13 and 14 is what He's done. 15 to 20 is who He is. Now, why would I want to do that? Let me just express this to you, that very often Christians want to know how to apply the Bible. They have in their minds, I want to live it out, and that is great that you want to live what the Bible teaches. 
You want to be faithful to God. You want to grow. You want to please God. You want to grow in grace. And in their mind, the way to do that is to apply the Scripture. And while ultimately you're going to need to do that, let me ask you this. What are you applying? In order to apply, you must first know. In fact, look at an example. If chapter 3 and 4 is the application, and it is, look at chapter 3 and what it says. Paul talks about this application. You want to live out the Christian life. Well, that's wonderful. And in this chapter, maybe we'll come back and preach it at some point, this would be the outline. He talks about your focus and aim of life in the first four verses, your changed character from verses 5 to 15, your devotion to God, verses 16 to 17, and your home life as well as your work life, 18 to 25. Now, you want to go live all of that out. Let me ask you this. Who's going to be the authority in your life when you do that? Who's going to have say over how you do those things? Who will be your example of how to do those things? Who will be the motivation for living the right kind of life? Who will be your help, your teacher, your comforter when times get hard in trying to live that life? You want to apply those things. You know who you're going to end up following. You know who you end up going to lean on. Let's listen to some of the things that Paul says. Notice chapter 3 and verse number 1. Therefore, if you have been raised with whom? With Christ. Then keep seeking the things above where who? Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse number 3, you have died, your life is hidden where? In Christ. Verse number 4, when Christ who is our life. Now, why is Paul talking so much about Christ in application? The reason for that is he's talked about Christ in chapter 1 and chapter 2 as the basis for application. All of that living is predicated upon who Christ is and what he's done in your life specifically. Now, if he's not what Paul says he is to you, and in your mind, you have no appreciation for what Paul says he's done for you, well then, friends, that's why the application will fail. You have to know and honor the Christ for who he is and what he's done. Well, if what he's done is in verses 13 and 14, let's talk this morning about who he is. Scripture teaches us to honor Christ for who he is. Who is he? Friends, I would urge you'd be hard-pressed to find a more compacted expression about Christ in these verses anywhere else in the New Testament. These verses say so much about who he is. And there are two thoughts I'd like for you to take with you. Number one, he is what these passages say. Number two, he needs to be that to you. Now, I say that because sometimes people have in their minds, well, he's not that to me. Well, if he's not that to you, that's okay. That'll be your failure. But being that to you is not make what makes him who he is. He is who Paul says he is, whether he is that in your mind or not. So your belief of it doesn't change the reality. The reality needs to furnish your belief. 
Who is he? Let's begin in verse number 15 and find out. Paul says in the very beginning, he is Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. What that means is Christ is divine. Paul says God is. Paul says God is invisible. He says it in more than one place. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 20. It's the reason they are without excuse. For the invisible things of God being made, he says they're, they're, they're given evidence. He says they're understood. The things that are made were made by that which does not appear. That's how the Hebrew writer says it. Paul says even his invisible attributes are known by the things that are made. God said to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, you saw no form. You saw no similar to. Why can't you make an idol? You didn't see one to replicate. He is the invisible God, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse number 12. What Paul is saying is that invisible God, that's who the Christ is. Christ in the flesh is the image of the invisible God. Christ disproves the notion that the invisible God couldn't take on flesh. Some people believe that. Maybe some of those in Colossae believe that, that he couldn't take on flesh. Paul says, yes, he is. He is, the image, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 2, 14 to 17 says, He was made in all ways like his brethren. He had flesh, the divine nature did. Slide down to verse number 21 and notice what Paul says there. And although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, and in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. That's exactly what Paul says. This is nothing short of that. The divine nature in a body. That's the teachings of the prophets. That's what they said would happen. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. The one who is coming is divine in nature. Matthew says that's exactly who he is. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. He is God with us. The entire book of John is dedicated to this premise. These things are written, John says. In fact, he says, truly many other things did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. If you have the gospel of John, you're reading that book. John says in 2125 that if all the things Jesus did were written, the world couldn't contain the books. And so in chapter 20, he says, these things are written with a very specific end that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What is it that God is trying to get you to believe? Exactly what Paul says here in verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God. In fact, it's said throughout the New Testament. The gospel writers repeat it, the prophecies, the prophets predicted it, and Jesus keeps saying it over and over again. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the writer says he is the express image of his person. Philippians 2 and verse number 5, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's the position of Scripture. He's not an angel, as some suppose. No, you'll want to read Hebrews chapter 1. Paul discusses angels, and he discusses the Christ. And when he talks about angels, he says, God never called them his son. 
No angel has ever been called the son of God. He ends that chapter by saying they are all ministering spirits sent forth for service on behalf of those who would obtain a salvation. But when he talks about the Christ in verse number 8, he says, thy throne, O God, is who's saying that? The divine nature. Jehovah is saying of the Christ, your throne, O God, is forever settled in heaven. Jesus was not a phantom. He was not an angel. He didn't swoon on the— This is nothing less than the divine nature in a body. Jesus would say to Philip, when Philip said to him, show us the Father, and it'll satisfy us. Jesus' response to that was, have I been so long time with you, Philip, and have you not known me? He that had seen me had seen the Father. Who is he? Why should I honor him? Because, Paul says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul goes on to say, for by him, verse number 16, for by him all things were created in the heavens, upon the earth, things visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things have been created through him and for him. By him were created all things. Some people suggest, well, Jesus was created. You read there where he says he was the firstborn of all creation. And then Paul says, for by him all things were created. And so some have said, well, Jesus was created, and then God made everything through him. Well, that's just not true. Paul is not saying Christ was created. In fact, in verse number 15, he just said he's the image of the invisible God. When Paul says he's the invisible God, he's the same as him. What Paul is saying is he's divine in his nature. And if he's divine, then he can't be created. You see, no created being gets to be called divine. And no divine being is created. If Jesus is the express image of God, well, then he's divine. And if he's divine, he's not created. No, what Paul is saying is, instead of him being created, he's the creator. That Jesus Christ, the one we know as the Christ, is actually the one who created all things. Turn to the book of John and listen to Jesus describe himself as God. And then hear John describe Jesus as the creator. In John chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, when you and I think about fathers and sons, we might have this image in our minds where there's the father here and then there's the son, or, or the son is a miniature version of the father, or maybe a junior version of the father, some version but not quite the same. That's not what the Jews would have understood. That's not what Jesus would have meant. When Jesus called God his father, he wasn't saying, I'm sort of like him. I'm a miniature version of him. I have certain similarities. That's not what Jesus was saying at all. In fact, what Jesus was saying is, I'm his equal. We are one and the same in our nature. 
Listen to Jesus say it and listen to the Jews react to it. In John chapter 5 and verse 17, he answered them, my father is working until now. Well, that doesn't seem like much to call God your father. You and I would do the same, but that's not how he meant it. In fact, when he taught men to pray, Matthew chapter 6, he said, pray after this manner, our Father, which art in heaven. Okay, we get to call God our Father, but that's not the way he meant it. No, when he said it, my Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Notice their reaction in verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, grab the last phrase, making himself—who did that? He did. What did he do? He made himself equal with God. That's exactly what he meant. I'm not created. I am divine. I am God. I'm the creator. Listen to it again in John chapter 10. Same, same conversation, same reaction. In John chapter 10 and verse number 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He, while you and I could say, well, they are. They're one in purpose, one in design, one in intent. We true, but that's not what he means. He means exactly what he said to Philip. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what he means. Note their reaction again. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you being a man make yourself out to be whom? Who's doing that? I've actually had people say to me, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Then you've never read the book of John. That's exactly what he's doing. And he's the one doing it. Sometimes people say, well, other people said it about him. No, he's saying it. You are making yourself equal to God. That's exactly what he's doing. And the scriptures say it over and over again. John chapter 1, John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. What is, John, what is Paul writing in Colossians chapter 1? He's not only the express image, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, certainly is, but he's also the creator of all things. That's what Paul says. For by him all things were created. And then he goes on to explain, you name it, it's everything. Visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, everything that is, is because of him. Brings us to verse number 17, the first part of that verse, Paul says, he, speaking of Christ, he is before all things, before all things, in front of all things, prior to, in place of, in advance of. And the reason is rather simple. It's because he's eternal. Again, those suggesting, well, he was made first. No, not at all. He's not first because he was made first. He's first because he's eternal and he made everything else. The explanation for the first part of 17 is in 15 and 16. Read it again. Since or he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him were all things created in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, 
all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. Well, that's why he's before. He's in front of everything. He has no beginning. He has no end. He gave rise to everything that is. He's before all things. But not only that, the second part of verse number 17 is the next point. Paul says of Christ and in him all things hold together. The divine nature that is the Christ, the Word made flesh, John 1 and verse number 14. It's rather an amazing thought, really, when you think of the divine nature taking on a body, becoming what he created, and then the various conversations that Christ had among humanity. He talked about the creation to his creation. In Matthew chapter 19, they ask him a question about marriage, and as always, the Pharisees, they're tempting him. And Jesus' answer to them was, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Wait a minute. You just said, Eric, in John chapter 1, that all things are made by him. That's right. He's the one who made all things. Okay. And then you said that the divine nature took on a body. That's right. So the one who made all things is in a body, having a conversation with people about marriage. And he says, have you not read, he who made them, who made them? The one talking. The one talking is the he who made everything. Have you not read? That he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. He's the one who did it. It's a rather amazing thought. The divine nature talking to his creation about creation. The divine nature talking to his creation about God. That's the conversation that takes place in John chapter 8. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. That's what the Lord said. The Jews' response to that was, they said unto him, now we know that you have a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and you say, if a man keep your saying, he shall never taste of death. Are you greater than our father, Abraham? Can you imagine asking God in a body, are you greater than our father, Abraham? He's dead. The prophets are dead. Whom do you make yourself? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me. But grab this last part. And if you were to read that, this is John chapter 8. If you were to go read it, it'd be 51 to 54. But they say to Christ, our father Abraham. That's what they say. Jesus says, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me, of whom you say he is your God. He's your God. He's my father. And we're one in the same. Same nature, in a body, talking to his creation about God. He's the giver of life, having conversations about life and death with humanity. John chapter 8, verse 23 and 24, he said unto them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I said, therefore, unto you that you shall die in your sins. If you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. 
to Martha in John chapter 11 and verse 23, Jesus said unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, picture it, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection. The eternal life in a body talking to his creation about the resurrection on which he says, I am the resurrection. Who is he, Paul? He holds all things together. Creation not only exists because of him, it consists because of him. It continues because of him. It functions because of him. It works the way it does because of him. The Hebrew writer says he upholds all things by the word of his power. One author said the word translated uphold or hold together expresses the idea that Jesus not only caused his creation to hold together, but he also continues to hold it together. Because everything is held together through him, the universe is not in chaos. It continues to be harmoniously controlled through Jesus' power. He is the unifying power that sustains and maintains the created universe. Now, I know for you and I, we just go outside and it works. Maybe in some instances then we're not much different than our little children who when they go to the refrigerator, there's food in there. Who when they click the light switch, the lights light on. When they're cold, you can turn the furnace on. It all appears to be magical. Parents know better though, don't we? How is all of this held together? By the power of the parents. Now, if you'll take that same understanding to everything that exists in the existence of our continued time here, the sun, the moon, the stars, the everything that functions and works, Paul is saying, the Hebrew writer is saying, it holds together. He is the one keeping it going allowing it to function as it does. The reason it hasn't gone into chaos is because he holds it together. Paul continues in verse 18, the first part of that verse, Paul says, he is also the head of the body, the church. Don't you love the word also here? Doesn't it just jump off the page to you? It's as if Paul has said so much about the Christ already. He is, he is, he is, and oh yeah, by the way, he is also the head of the church. This word means supreme, chief, prominent. If he's the head of the church, well then that would suggest that we have an understanding of the church. To that end, you and I would have to read and study the book of Ephesians to get the same level of focus on the church as the book of Colossians gives to the Christ. One is an emphasis of the church to Christ, the other is Christ to the church. And if we had an understanding of that, which it seems Paul just assumes, Paul assumes that his audience understands the church, but do we? The importance of it? 
the significance of it, the essentiality of it, the inestimable power and ability of it. You'd have to appreciate the wonder, the glory, the scope, the beauty, the wisdom that is the church. And if you were able and are able to grasp and appreciate that, then when you turn to the Christ, what you will end with is, as great and marvelous as the church is, Jesus is the most supreme, prominent part of the church. He purchased her with his blood. Scripture would say he's married to her. He died for her. He's the head of the church. The church easily, God's divine wisdom, greatest institution on the planet, the most wonderful thing that God has done. The body of the church or the body of Christ is, Paul says, the church. And the head of the church is the Christ. Christ is the fullness of the church. The church is the fullness of the Christ. As the head of the church, the church then is under his control. The church then's doctrines are decided by him. He decides the doctrines of the church. He determines the organization of the church. He decides what's acceptable worship of the church. Please don't let somebody convince you that you and I have a right to decide how God will be worshiped. Please don't let somebody convince you that you and I have a right to try to organize God's church somehow differently than we read in Scripture. All we could do is disorganize it. It's his church. He's the head. And so the church submits to the Christ. The church follows Christ. The church obeys Christ. Christ is the head of the body. Paul says as much in Ephesians 1, 22, 23, that God has put all things under his feet, given him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 27, we are baptized into one body. It is the body of Christ. And if you read that through the book of Ephesians, you couldn't come away with any other conclusion than there is only one. There is only one body. Paul didn't say heads, and he didn't say bodies. Christ is the head of the body, which is the church. It's why when you get to Ephesians 5, the marriage analogy works so well. Because the church is in place of the wife, and the man is representative of the Christ. And the man is to have one wife as Christ has one church. That's why it works. Christ doesn't have multiple brides. No man should either. There is to be one man, one woman for life, and Christ is the head of his church, one. That's all you'll find in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Paul says this mystery is great, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church, chapter 5, 31 to 33 of Ephesians. The next thing Paul says in chapter 1 and verse number 18, he says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he will come to have first place in everything. Christ is not the first person to rise from the dead. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is Christ is the one risen from the dead. He will never die again, and he is the first place of those who have done that. 
Paul would say the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. It was Christ's resurrection from the dead that accomplished and completed all of the work of God relative to his coming. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection, Romans 1.5. He destroyed, defeated the devil, delivered those in bondage and fear of death, Hebrews 1.14 and 15. Defeated death, Acts 2.22 to 24. He sat down on the throne after his resurrection and ascension, Hebrews 12.3 and 4. Christ is prominent and preeminent of those who will be raised from the dead. He is also the guarantee. How are we so confident we will rise from the dead? Read that great chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, and listen to Paul talk about that because Christ was risen from the dead, we shall rise from the dead. As Paul put it, in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This mortal must put on immortality. As we have borne the earthy, we shall also bear the heavenly. Christ is the firstborn among those who have been resurrected. Christ then is the means of reconciliation. That's verses 19 and 20. Paul says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The first thing Paul says, it was the Father's goodwill. Jesus' coming was according to the plans and purposes of God. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The fullness of what? Look at chapter 2. Paul will use that same expression and give a little more explanation. Chapter 2 and verse number 9, speaking of Jesus, Paul says there, for in him all the fullness of the divine nature, all the fullness of the Godhead, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Don't forget verse number 10. Paul says, and in him you have been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority. Christ was God's plan to come to die for the sins of the world. And because he was in a body, that's how verse 20 was accomplished. Through him to reconcile all men to the Father. Christ came and served, did the will of the Father. He took on him the form of a servant, Philippians 2. A body was prepared, Hebrews 8. He didn't take this position. He humbled himself, Hebrews 5. He is the means of getting us to the Father. Sometimes people almost feel like, or at least it seems to be the case, that they seemingly feel sorry for members of the Godhead. It almost feels like some people believe that members of the Godhead have been regulated or relegated, rather, to, to certain positions, and they don't really like that. So in their mind, they see themselves as propping up or giving attention to certain members of the Godhead, and they want to emphasize them so as to not seemingly to leave them out. <laughs> so... They, they want to emphasize the Holy Spirit, and they want to emphasize the Christ, and they want to, and it's almost like, well, we want them to all get equal billing, and they feel some kind of way about this. And it's strange because 
the reason we know what we know about the Godhead is because God revealed it. We don't know more than what's revealed. We didn't write it. There is no lack in any member of the Godhead. Neither member needs protecting from us. Neither member needs more billing. But what's very clear in Scripture is that all of this is pictured and portrayed as the Father being the prime mover and the other members, the Word made flesh and the Spirit, being willing to and going with the notion that all of this is to reconcile us back to Him. That's the picture. There is no member of the Godhead feeling slighted about that. There's no member of the Godhead feeling like, I don't get enough press. And some people have somehow began to try to switch this up and say, well, since they're all equal, we're going to do all the same things equally. That's not the picture in Scripture. That's not the way they presented it to us. That's not the way it's written. What's written is stuff like we read just right there in verses 19 and 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. He's not talking about Christ and the second himself. The Christ is reconciling us to the Father. Now, some folks act like they don't want to get to the Father. They act like, I want to stop at Jesus. They act like, I want to stop at the Spirit. That's not what you read in your Bible. You're having to make that up. What's in your Bible is Christ came to give you, I, the whole world of humanity, an opportunity, in fact, the only opportunity to get back to the Father. In fact, he was rather clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man does what? Well, you don't want that, right? You've thrown in a towel on that one. That's exactly what he said. No man comes to the Father except through me. It was the will of the Father. And Christ said, I am come not to do my own will, but to do his and to finish his work. In fact, concerning the Spirit, Jesus said, he won't speak of himself. He'll speak of me. He will glorify me. So anytime you have this notion that I'm going to emphasize the Spirit, Christ would say, He told you about me. And anytime you say, well, Christ, I just want, He sent you to the Father. In order to apply the teachings of chapters 3 and 4, you have to know the Christ of chapters 1 and 2. Christ is the focus and aim of our life. Christ is the one who changes our character. Christ is the one who determines our devotion to God. You want to make application? That's fantastic. You want to be a better husband or wife? You know, people say that. I just want to be a better Christian. Well, read Colossians 3. But before you do, read chapters 1 and 2. Know who is motivating you to live a right life. Let me ask you this. When times get hard and things get difficult, who are you going to lean on? 
when you want to do your own thing because your other, your spouse, your children, your boss, somebody is acting out, when you want to give it back to them, who's going to be the authority in your life? Tell you don't do that. Who's going to be the example you model? See, here's the problem. People say, I want to I make application. I want to make application. Is Jesus controlling your tongue or are you? If Jesus were with you, would you say that? If you were motivated by Jesus, would you do that? My mama used to say to us all the time, don't go anywhere you can't take Jesus. What, mama? She said, you think of yourself as holding the Lord's hand, and if you get to a door and he can't go in or won't go in, then don't you go in. What are you saying? Christ is our life. That's what she was saying. I want to be a good husband. Well, who are you going to model yourself after? Well, I want to be a good wife. Well, who are you going to listen to? I want to keep loving my children. Well, who, who are you going to model your, your father and your parenting after? You know Colossians chapter 3 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. How is she to do that? As is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter against them. You ever wondered why the Lord would tell a husband not to be bitter against his own wife? Well, I'll tell you, it's because it could happen. <laughs> it's because it could happen. What happens to a man? Have I gone from preaching to meddling? I don't know. I can't ever tell. <laughs> what happens to a man or woman when they believe themselves to be doing all that they can in a relationship and it's not being reciprocated? What happens to that person? What happens to their mind? What happens to their desire? What happens to their energies and to their efforts? What happens to children when they believe, I can't please these people. I, nothing I can do seems to be right. Nothing I say, nothing I act. They always own me. What, what, what happens to the mind? You know what Paul is saying is the Christ of chapters 1 and 2 is to determine what you do in 3 and 4. Husbands, don't be bitter. Let me ask you this. Since Christ is married to the church, has the church always done what Christ wanted? Has the church always behaved the way Christ would like? Has Christ ever been bitter and stopped loving the church? No, never. The application comes after what we know about him. Don't try to live for God without knowing and appreciating who Christ is. Christ is everything to Christianity. Paul would simply say, Christ is our life. Is it yours this morning? If you're not a Christian, we beg you to become one. And I do mean that. We implore you. We plead with you. We, we invite you. We would do all that we could to help you come to an understanding of what you need to do to be saved by Jesus. Would you believe that he's the Son of God? Would you change your heart and your mind and repent? Would you confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water, baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and let God through Jesus wash away every sin, make you a new creation? And if you are his child, it is an early part of a new year. What an opportunity that stands before us. How? much good do we have opportunity to do and what kind of people can we become when we focus on Jesus and 
honor Jesus and strive to be like Jesus. And friends, if nobody else does, will you? Will you be a follower of Jesus? If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come this morning as we stand and as we sing.